Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word this evening. And uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come together this evening to focus upon your word. We know that your word is never changing because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can rely upon your word and trust it. And in the midst of all of the changes, all of the chaos, all of the uncertainties of life, we know that we can always count upon your word. Father, we pray that as we study this evening, that as we go from Old Testament to New Testament, that we can come to a greater appreciation for your plan, your purposes, how you've designed things, and in the trustworthiness of you, your plan, and your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in our study in Romans. Haven't um, uh, met since I think it was July the 4th, so that's been about three weeks. And prior to that, as we're going through Romans chapter 9, uh, looking specifically at verse 5, I'm focusing on the fact that, that on Paul's statement related to the deity of Christ. And uh, I've, as many times as I've read through Romans, you know, we all have a problem of reading things. They become familiar. Or we just are looking at other aspects. But in Romans 9, 5, Paul says, related to Israel, the Israelites, of whom are the fathers, that would refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, that is, in terms of his humanity, Jesus was born an Israelite, a Jew, uh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Uh, amen. And I pointed out that that is better translated, uh, Christ, the eternally blessed God. That phrase, the eternally blessed God, is appositional to Christ. And then add the relative clause, who is over all, at the end. Because that makes it come across uh, very as a very strong verse in support of the full deity of Jesus Christ. Christ the eternally blessed God. Now, when Paul wrote that in Romans 9, the only, outside of a few scriptures that had been penned already by the Apostle Paul, 
most of the New Testament had not been written. Paul had written, um, James had been written before Paul wrote anything. Then Galatians was written, First and Second Thessalonians, First uh, and Second Corinthians, and now Romans. But the Gospels were probably just at this point being written, uh, but they had not had any circulation yet, so most of the New Testament was not yet written. So how do we know that Christ, that is the Messiah of the Old Testament, is fully God? Well, that comes from Old Testament passages. There's such a uh, move always from liberal theology that claims that that it was Paul and the New Testament that invented the deity of Christ. And if you listen to those great purveyors of, of sound theology, the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, and uh, some of the other things that you see on TV, they, that it was not, uh, the, the New Testament wasn't written until 100 or 200 years after the death of the last apostle. Now, that has been... Uh, disproven by uh, much modern scholarship, even numerous liberal theologians who don't believe in the infallibility or inspiration of Scripture uh, uh, have to admit on the basis of evidence that the New Testament was probably all written before the end of the first century. One has even gone so far as to claim that the first uh, that the New Testament was written even earlier than than most uh, conservative Orthodox biblical theologians, biblically Orthodox theologians, uh, would would put it. So the evidence is clearly there, and the deity of Christ, the deity of the Messiah, was something that I pointed out came out of the Old Testament. Now, last time. I said, and in the previous couple of lessons, that we ought to have at our fingertips to use in any kind of witnessing situation three Old Testament passages and three New Testament passages that support the deity of Christ. So that when you're sitting there and you're talking to your next-door neighbor or you're talking to somebody you struck up a conversation with at the grocery store or you're talking with somebody that you're sitting with in the waiting room at the doctor's office or whomever it might be, and they say, well, why, why do you Christians think that Jesus is God? You can say, well, because my pastor said so. Oh, wrong answer. Jeff Phipps said so. Equally wrong answer. See, see, and that's what so many people do. They, oh, well, it's, I got it in my notes at home. I heard it. It's in Isaiah somewhere. It's in the New Testament somewhere. The Bible says so. That doesn't work. See, the job of the pastor teacher, according to Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Evangelism is part of your work of ministry, and what I'm doing here is equipping or training you and giving you the information you need so that uh, you have it in your mind. The only Bible doctrine you know is what you know without your notebooks or your Bible. Always remember that. The only Bible doctrine you know is what you know without your notebooks, without your Bible, uh, just off the top of your head. That's the only Bible doctrine you really know. So we have to get these, just, just learn three verses. The Old Testament, it's simple. Two of them are in Isaiah. One's in Micah. Isaiah 714 
and Isaiah 9.6. We looked at Isaiah 7.14 the last time, and Isaiah 9.6, and then Micah. And the nice thing to remember is they all, Isaiah and Micah lived at the same time. In fact, when we get to the Micah passage tonight, we'll see that there are a lot of similarities between uh, Micah's message and Isaiah's message. They complemented each other. I mentioned the other night, or Tuesday night, in reference to Bible study methods, and I was really pleased to get the feedback that I got when I announced that sometime probably early October, I'm going to teach a Bible study methods course. In other words, how can you become a better Bible student, study the Bible, read your Bible more intelligently, and come to dig some things out for yourself? Uh, And so we'll do that. We'll probably start sometime in early October, and that will last uh, until February or March. And so we'll probably spend more than an hour on Sunday, probably an early Sunday morning or Sunday evening class, and uh, and and I think everybody will get a lot out of it. We did this some years ago. Had um, a young man who was uh, working with us at the time taught that as part of his training and did a good job. People got a lot out of it. But I want to do this and get it on video and get a uh, and and upgrade the teaching on it a good bit. And so I think we'll all get a lot out of it. Well, one of the things we do when we look at Bible study methods is first thing is observation. What does it say? It's always amazing to me how little we observe. So we'll have a lot of fun with observation. The second thing is interpretation. What does it mean? What Not just what does it mean to you. That's an application question. The key question in interpretation is what did the original authors, plural, the human author and the divine author, What did the original author mean? And yes, you can discern accurately and exactly what the original author meant. In most cases, um, we can get pretty precise because of uh, the way Scripture is constructed. And then the next thing is correlation, and that's comparing Scripture with Scripture. And that's part of interpretation because once you come to the meaning of a passage, then you want to correlate that to other passages. Sometimes you'll compare Scripture with Scripture and go, oops, maybe what I thought that passage meant isn't right because it doesn't fit with this passage or that passage. And so then that's all part of the learning and study process. But a lot of times when you take passages, especially Messianic passages, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, you not only discover that they, they help... Uh, shed light on one another, but as you look at them in the way they're revealed, Isaiah is written about the same time as Micah. Uh, later on, you have uh, other other prophecies. You had some that that were before Isaiah, and sometimes the prophecy, for example, the prophecy in Isaiah when he says, "Behold, the woman will conceive," that indicates that there was already a belief there that there was something significant about a particular woman. And that takes you all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. And so you see that there are certain threads that will run through the Scripture, and they get picked up again and again in these Messianic prophecies. And so that's a little bit about what we're doing here. We're going to see some of that. So we looked last time at Isaiah 7.14, and tonight I want to look at Isaiah 9.6. So just remember that, Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. You shouldn't have to be told these things because they are 
both quoted in the gospel uh, birth stories in, in Matthew and in Luke. And just so you get a little preview of coming attractions, when I finish the Proverbs series, which will be sometime in uh, September, we're going to have an early Christmas this year. We're going to start a study of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to use Matthew as a sort of a lens for looking at the life of Christ. Now, this isn't going to be an in-depth study of everything that can be taught about everything that Jesus said. I want to save that for later. I've looked at some things in depth. We'll look at some other things in depth. But what I find is a need for a more synthetic approach to the life of Christ. A lot of people, I've heard this for, for most of my life. They know something about the life of Paul, something about the life of uh, Moses, something about the life of Daniel, and they can give you the broad outline, but they can't do diddly on the life of Jesus. He was born, he had a lot of problems with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they crucified him. That's it. And so we need to have a little more structure in understanding that. And so I want to use the Gospel of Matthew to do that. So after a period of about a year, uh, without drilling too deeply, there are a number of, uh, I've looked out on the Internet, and there are some other doctrinal pastors who've done a great job, and they have like three or four or five or six hundred hours on the life of Christ. problem with that is people have drilled down in such detail that they don't really have an overview anymore. They've lost the, the structure. So we've got to have a good structure in our minds, and so we're going to do that on Sunday morning for uh, about a year to a year and a half. And then that will give me a framework to be able to come back at later times and drill down on particular things such as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Upper Room Discourse, uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse, things of that nature, some of which I've taught before. For example, the Upper Room Discourse in the series I did years ago on the Gospel of John. So we'll be doing some of that, so that's just a little preview of coming attractions. Okay, we're going to look tonight at um, <clears throat> understanding the deity of Christ. We're going to look at Isaiah 9-6 and Micah 5-2. The contexts are important, but they're not as significant or technical as the context of Isaiah 14, so we can hit those pretty quickly. And if we have time, then I want to move into uh, the three key passages in the New Testament, and they're easy to remember. They're all in the first chapter. So all you have to remember is John, Colossians, and Hebrews, and if you remember they're all in the first chapter, you've got it. When I was in seminary, Dr. Ryrie used to, uh, and, and he was a real stickler for detail, but when it came to knowing text for key points, he just made, he said, if you know the book and the chapter, you can find the verse. And so that's all he would require on examinations. And I always thought that was good. If you can get the chapter and the verse down, I mean, the, the, the book and the chapter down, you can find the verse 99% of the time. So if you can just remember John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. As a matter of fact, I've sat on a number of ordination councils over the years, and one of the questions that was usually asked was give me three key passages on the deity of Christ. And all that was required at those ordination councils was book and chapter. And it would be real simple, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. So if you just have John, Colossians, and Hebrews down, you've got it. Okay, 
Uh, let's look at this first first verse for tonight. He, Isaiah nine six. Isaiah nine six, well known verse at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase, and then the next verse goes on to read, which I don't have on this slide, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, what's the most important thing that we need to comprehend when we start to study a passage? Well, one of the most important things we need to comprehend is the context. And always remember that a text taken out of the context leaves you with a con job. And many people get things completely distorted because they ignore the context. Now, the context here is really a broad context. I'm not just talking about Isaiah 9. I'm talking about what goes on from Isaiah 7 through Isaiah 11. And the background for this is what we talked about in Isaiah chapter 7, and that is that there is an alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria to attack the southern kingdom. Uh, This is at a time during the reign of Ahaz when the northern kingdom is just about in in its final, uh, final legs, not long before the destruction of the northern kingdom, uh, by the um, by the armies of the Assyrian Empire, and there's a threat now coming from your friends, the Northern Kingdom, and your enemies, the Syrians. They've united against the Southern Kingdom, and as I pointed out in our study of, of uh, Isaiah 7:14, the focal point was to destroy the House of David. And they weren't destroying the house of David simply because they didn't like David or they didn't like his descendants, but because there was a spiritual dimension that they may or may not have been aware of, and that is that this is part of the angelic conflict, Satan's attempt to destroy God's plan for providing a Savior. And if and the, the promise of the Savior, had uh, of the descent of the Savior, had come to David in what's known as the Davidic Covenant. In 2 Samuel 7.14, God promised David that he would provide a, a, a descendant who would be eternal and that there would be an eternal dynasty and a descendant of David who was eternal, indicating deity, that a descendant of David who was eternal would sit on his throne forever. Now, if the this alliance, this unholy alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrians was effective, then that would destroy that promise. And it would render God's ability to fulfill the promise through a descendant of David null and void. At least that was that's the general attempt. Satan has a number of these attempts, attacks on uh, different uh, uh, lineages in the Old Testament to try to block the coming of, of the Messiah. So that's the context, this, this same turmoil. There's prophecy in uh, chapter uh, 8. Uh, the prophecy, of course, of Isaiah 7.14 is that God would give to the house of David a sign that a virgin, the virgin literally, not, a, not just any virgin, but the virgin, 
would conceive and bear a son whose name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This emphasizes that the the, the child of the virgin would be God, would be fully divine, as I pointed out in the previous lessons. And then there's also a warning that this doesn't mean that that the house of David is going to survive without conflict or without difficulty. There's warning that a day is going to come when the God is going to raise up an empire that is going to threaten, uh, it will destroy the northern kingdom and threaten the southern kingdom, and this is the threat of the kingdom of Assyria mentioned in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 7 and also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8. But there's hope, and that hope is that God has provided a future solution, and he's not going to go back on his promise to the house of David, and he's going to establish uh, establish the kingdom. And so we have this continuous prophecy. If you just look in chapter 8 briefly, chapter 8, starting in verse 5, we have another message from God through Isaiah. And as much as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that, Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Remaliah's sons. Now, uh, who were resin and Remaliah? This is the king of, um, the king of Syria is resin and Pekah the son of Remaliah is the king of Israel. And we studied that back in Isaiah 7 verse 1. And so they're, they're, these are those who are traitors who are rejoicing in the uh, <clears throat> alliance with the northern kingdom to destroy the house of David. And then the promise from God comes in verse 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. So Assyria is pictured as a river at flood stage that will rise up and destroy the northern kingdom. Uh, we'll go over his channels, go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah, but doesn't destroy Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, but he doesn't go over the head. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, there's that term again, God with us. So the one who owns the land is this one who is going to be born, who is called Emmanuel. So there's this promise that continues to be reiterated down through the next uh, verse that those who wait on the Lord will be delivered uh, down through the rest of that chapter. And so then we, so we come to look at this context and we see that there's a promise of severe judgment on the northern kingdom. And this is seen at right before our context. Remember, there weren't chapter verses or verse divisions in the, in the original text. But at the end of chapter 8, we read, They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And, and this is talking about Israel. So when you look at uh, these, these verses uh, at the end of verse 8, and again, another verse that we've alluded to recently, I know, in studying uh, demonism, 
Uh, it's a, an indictment of the uh, demonic, the occult in the northern kingdom. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizard, wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? That's the rebuke. They should seek God rather than uh, mediums and wizards. Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? See, they were going to all these other sources to find hope rather than the word of God. And then Isaiah says no to the law and to the testimony. That is, the source of truth and the solution to problems is the word of God. It's Bible doctrine, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, light's a key word we're looking at here because there's this interplay in the text between light, which is uh, uh, which indicates the holiness and righteousness of God, and it illuminates the mind. The, uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, the psalmist says in Psalm 119. The psalmist also says, uh, in thy light we see light. So it's talking about the illumination of Scripture. In the northern kingdom, Scripture was rejected, so there's no light there in darkness. And so I, the, when we get to verse 21 here, it's talking about this judgment time of darkness that comes. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. That is, the people, because of the rejection of the truth, are under judgment. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. They are going to curse God curse their king as a result of being unrighteous. There's Romans 1, 18 and following. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And you know as well as I do when somebody's doing something wrong and they're dead set on and you tell them in however nice a way you want to that they need to straighten up, that, that they don't like correction, and they turn and they're enraged at you. And so this is what happens. God has brought discipline on them, and all that does is confirm them in their judgment, and they turn around and they shake their fist at God. And what do they see? That's verse 22. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. See, we have to pay attention in this lesson to this interplay between light and darkness. Darkness is, is the result of spiritual rejection of God and the truth. Nevertheless, now there's a contrast that takes place when we get into chapter 9, verse 1. And in the Hebrew, it's translated, different translations handle the opening word differently. It's the Greek preposition or particle key, which usually means for or because. It gives a reason. It's translated in the New King James as nevertheless. I think the NASB translates it as but. But is a really awkward translation. It's simply an explanation because or for the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali is in the north of Israel. You take a look. When you see these geographical terms, you take a look at um, at where uh, this is. Go to the back of your Bible, look it up in a map. And uh, I don't think it's gone out yet. Connie's on vacation right now, and uh, there's a couple of emails pending because she's uh, traveling. And they should go out, but one of them is there's a new app that you can download for your iPad or your iPhone called, 
think it's called Bible Map, one word, Bible Map. And you can download it, and if you uh, click on a place name, it takes you directly to Google Maps and your location, live uh, satellite or map terrain features and everything, and that's a neat little thing, so you can figure out where these locations are. So <clears throat> in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, or territories given to those tribes, and they're in the north. They're in the area known as the Galilee. And this was the area where Jesus spent most of his, uh, most of his ministry. And so what's being said here is the gloom is going to diminish. Uh, the gloom will not be upon her, that's Israel, who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterwards, so there's a recognition that a light is going to come into this land that has gone through this severe uh, judgment, this severe state of, uh, of, of darkness. And the Hebrew words that are used here indicate a, um, a state of darkness and se- severe darkness and distress Upon the land, it's a sign of judgment. The use of the two words together uh, emphasizes this. They 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 um, uh, correlate to each other. So, afterwards, more heavily opp- uh, and afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. And that that particular uh, statement there is later picked up. And referenced in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 4.16, which comes from verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And that's applied by Matthew to the light that is seen when the Messiah comes and proclaims the uh, <clears throat> presence of the kingdom of God in, uh, in Matthew chapter Uh, Chapter 4, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So this shows revelation of the truth, God's grace to the uh, area of the northern kingdom, which is Galilee. And uh, this is uh, prophesied here in verse 2. Now, verse 3, we read, You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. Now, this jumps forward in time. That's the trouble with reading some of these prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They switch back and forth from the present time of pronouncing judgment on the disobedient nation in, uh, for example, in the 7th century or 8th century B.C., and then it jumps forward to the future blessed time of the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. And so verse 3 jumps forward. Uh, You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. This is talking about when the Messiah comes and throws off the oppressors of of Israel and reestablishes the nation. Now, verse 5 says, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. So all that refers to when Jesus returns at the battle of Armageddon, destroys the enemies of Israel, and then establishes the kingdom. Now we see the foundational basis for that, which is in the Messianic prophecy of verse 6. For unto us, us referring to Israel, for unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given. Now, this whole prophecy from verse 1 
all the way down through the end of this chapter and into chapter 10 and down to at least verse 24 of chapter 10 is all written in poetry in Hebrew. So you have the same principles that we've studied in, in Proverbs. You have parallelism to stress the different ideas. And the first two lines of verse 6 are given in synonymous parallelism. Child is parallel to son. Born is parallel to given. But there's a difference. In the one hand, there is a child that is born, indicating normal human birth. Indicating a normal human birth process, a child is born. And then we have a parallel, but it's contrastive, uh, and it's antithetical, actually, unto, it doesn't say but, which is what you normally get in an ant- antithetical parallelism, but it's not synonymous. The son is the child, but the son is given. And the term son is always a reference in passages like this to the son of God. So the son of God isn't born. He is eternal. He's given. So we have the humanity and the deity of Christ, both uh, of the Messiah, both mentioned here. A child is born and a son is given. Now, this son that is given is going to be the son of man, Daniel 7, who comes to rule the kingdoms with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2, 7. So, and his name, he, 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 the government will be upon his shoulder, indicating that he will rule. And then there are... Uh, there are five titles that are given to him. He's called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now, there's a problem with that translation, which I'll point out in a minute, uh, Prince of Peace. And then we're told that of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He's going to sit on the throne of David. What was the issue back in Isaiah 7? Is the throne of David, is the promise of God to David going to survive? Is the house of David going to survive? And this is, again, reiterating the comfort of God's promise that in spite of the fact that they're going to come under this severe judgment and they're going to have distress and darkness and anguish, that the Messiah will come, the son of David will come, and he will establish peace and order and judgment and justice Forever, not just for a couple of centuries, not just for his lifetime, uh, but forever. Now, there's some problems here with the with the text. As I pointed out before, one of the problems we have in the text that we use for the Hebrew Bible is that it was edited by a group of scribes over a period of centuries that standardized a Hebrew language and standardized the text and they're called the Masoretes. But during that period of time, from roughly about 400 A.D. to 900 A.D., was also the rise of an expansion of Christianity. And so a lot of things that the Masoretes did with the text were designed to affect the interpretation of the text so it would not be messianic. And one of the things that they do here is they added certain accents in the Hebrew to break up the flow of the text, and so it would not be translated as you see it in uh, the New King James Version and most of the versions you're familiar with. And so I put them in parallel to one another here on the screen. 
His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. That's Those are two titles, Wonderful and Counselor. And uh, the third is Mighty God. So this child that is born is going to be called Mighty God. Now that would seem to be a major problem, wouldn't it? How can God, Mighty God, be born? And so they wrestled with that. Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now some people have have questioned that term, and they've said, well, uh, he's not the father, he's the son. But in Hebrew, it's aviad, which av at the beginning is the word for father, and aviad is of eternity. So it's merely a designation that he, this child that is born is eternal. He's the father of eternity, an idiom for stating that he is eternal without beginning and without end. So it should be translated Father of Eternity and Prince of Peace. But if you look on the right, you'll see how it's translated according to the Masoretic text. When you insert the uh, uh, some of the uh, punctuation or uh, the accents that the Masoretes inserted, it would read, The Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, calls his name. Notice how it shifts the meaning of the verb, the the tense of the verb, or its its voice actually, from will be called, which is passive, to an active. They really twist it up in order to get their, their translation here. Calls his name Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So instead of having one persona in the verse, which is the child, the son, you now have two. You have... Uh, the child, and now God calls him something. And there's no warrant for that. In fact, one of the better trained Hebrew, Hebrew scholars, Franz Delich, who co-authored a 10-volume commentary on the Old Testament, usually referred to as Kyle and Delich commentary, uh, and Delich was from a, a Jewish background, had, I believe, trained uh, for the rabbinate, he says there are four basic problems with what the Masoretic text does. First of all, contextually, it doesn't make sense that two sets, different sets of names would appear. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God would be one set. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, another set. The first two applying to God, the second two applying to the Son. He said the text does not indicate anything directed toward God, but the point of the text is the name of the child. Second, he points out there's no reason to expect such a long roundabout name for God. And third, he says a dual name construction as indicated by the accents has no precedent in Isaiah. This doesn't fit Isaiah's style at all. It's extremely unusual. And then fourth, he says the first two names would be written uh, if it were to be uh, indicating a difference between God and a human who is called Eternal Father and Prince of Peace, then a further distinction would be made in the text to identify that, and the first two titles would begin with a definite article to indicate those apply to God, uh, and that would distinguish them from the second two titles. And so it just doesn't doesn't fit at all. And the only reason you would try to come up with that second uh, translation is because of the way the Masoretes inserted the accents. 
Now, if we go back to Isaiah 9, 6 and just look at these these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, we see that these are all terms that reinforce the deity of this child who is born. He's not just a human child. Uh, the first name, Wonderful, is a Hebrew word, Pele, which is, uh, we use the term wonderful in, in English to translate it often, but it really means incomprehensible, uh, beyond our understanding, uh, something that is beyond human uh, capability, something extraordinary, and is uh, used uh, of, of both God and man. Often it is used of, uh, of God Oh, and this word Pele is only used of God in the Old Testament. We use the word wonderful to describe many different things. We say, oh, I've got a wonderful wife, I've got a wonderful husband, I've got wonderful dogs, whatever it is. But in the Bible, this word Pele is only used of God. It's never applied uh, to human beings. So this is talking about a specific divine attribute that never crosses over into the human realm. Uh, the term counselor, again, is a term that relates to God, that he is uh, the one who is the source of advice and counsel and guidance. The next term, mighty God, is also a name that relates to God, El Gabor, and this refers to God as a powerful warrior. Uh, he is, uh, and it is used many times in Scripture, as in Isaiah chapter 10 uh, verse 21. Uh, the third name I pointed out already is uh, the Father of Eternity, and this is used uh, another time in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16. And then the last title, Prince of Peace, uh, does not uh, in and of itself emphasize deity, but it does when we understand the role of the Messiah in bringing peace to God and man as the as the God man and that is his role so what what this verse does is to emphasize both the uh, deity as well as the humanity of Christ so now we have two passages early on in in Isaiah uh, given within the context of national disintegration uh, indicating the promise of the faithfulness of God to provide a solution to man's problems because only God can solve man's problems Man can't solve his problems. He can't solve it through education. He can't solve problems through economics, through politics, any of these other things. Only God ultimately can solve the problem. And the problem comes through Jesus, and the solution comes through Jesus Christ. He is the one alone because he solves the basic problem, which is sin. And so only when he comes to reign will he put an end to war. Now that's important because if you're looking at Isaiah, and since we're here, I'm going to just go back a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 2. And in Isaiah chapter 2, there is a uh, well-known uh, prophecy related to the millennial kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, we read, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, I've taught this before. Re remind you of this, that the term latter days can apply to either the latter days of God's plan for Israel or the latter days of God's plan for the church. And so we have to pay attention to the context to see which latter days it is. People say, well, are we in the last days? Well, Paul referred to his time as the latter days of the church. So we have this, the, the church age in and of itself always exhibits certain characteristics because we're living 
in the cosmic system. But then there's the latter days of the time of Israel, and those latter days refers to what we also call Daniel's 70th week, that last seven-year period that is sometimes referred to as the tribulation. That's what we're talking about when we see this term, the latter days, and also many times includes the last period in Israel's uh, history, which relates to their messianic kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days, so this is focusing on the millennial kingdom, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. There's going to be a massive earthquake in Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation period during the time of the Battle of Armageddon, and and that whole Temple Mount area is going to become elevated and enlarged, and this will be the site of the temple that is rebuilt during the millennial kingdom described in uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 and following. And then we read, uh, it shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. This is going to be the center of God's worship in the millennial kingdom. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mount, the mountain of the Lord, only one. You're not going to have worship centers all over the world. You're going to have one in Jerusalem Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And then we have the well-known verse, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Of course, that is a verse related to the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom as a time of peace because he's the Prince of Peace. Now, that was co-opted by the United Nations back in 1945 and was chiseled into the uh, uh, wall over the entryway to the, to the uh, not League of Nations, but to the United Nations, because they're making a messianic claim. The very existence of that U.N. building is an act of idolatry and opposition to God because they claim to do what only God can do, and that is to bring peace. They claim to be the Messiah, and so that's just totally false. Now, I went there for a reason. Now, I want you to turn over to Micah. Turn over to Micah. Micah is in that part of your Bible that the pages aren't discolored or turned because you really haven't read much there. And what is known as the Twelve or the Minor Prophets, they're minor not because they're not significant, they're minor because they're small, they're short little books that you can read uh, easily one a night, and in the next two weeks you can read all of the Minor Prophets. Micah is writing at the same time as Isaiah, and there are many things that are said by Micah that are also said by Isaiah. They're writing during the 8th century, roughly the 700s, just prior to the defeat of the northern kingdom by Assyria. In fact, they both focus on warnings about what will happen to the northern kingdom uh, and also predictions of what will happen to the southern kingdom by, by the king of Babylon. And these are major themes in 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 both uh, both books. Now, if you look at Micah chapter four, I just want to pick up a little context. We're going to be look, actually looking at Micah five two. This is our third verse from the Old Testament. Uh, 
But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, what's the context here? The context, again, comes out of uh, a, a section that deals with the promise of the future glories of Israel under the rule of the Messiah, but also promise of future judgment, that God is going to bring judgment upon Israel, and they're going to go through a period of deep distress, and we know from history that they were taken out of the land under the fifth cycle of discipline again, and that they are going to uh, eventually be returned. Now, that hasn't happened yet. I think we're seeing uh, a partial restoration in fulfillment of Isaiah 11, 11 uh, right now. This is the initial uh, regathering in unbelief. There are two regatherings, worldwide regatherings, one in unbelief, one in belief. The world, the, the regathering that occurred in, uh, in, in 538 in the Old Testament period was partial. There were still more Jews living outside of the land during the uh, time of Jesus than in the land. It wasn't a full restoration. It was, uh, most, of, most of them just returned from a few countries. Uh, so there has never been a worldwide regathering. And Isaiah 11.11 says there will be two. Or it indicates a second time, and the second time is in uh, when, they're, when they are uh, in, in regeneration. So the first time is not going to be in regeneration. That's the implication. And the first time is not specifically mentioned. It just says, I will regather you a second time. Well, when's the first time? I believe the only time in history that marks that is right now. Right now, we're very close, about 48 49% of Jews in the world now live in the state of Israel. And it won't be long before over 50% live in the modern state of Israel. That's not a sign of the time, but it is an indication that this is a massive, first of its kind since, um, since 722 B.C., when God has restored uh, a, a vast number, almost half the world, the Jews in the world, to the historic land of Abraham, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's look at Micah 4, get the context. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days. What latter days? Latter days of Israel. This would be uh, related to either the tribulation period or the millennial messianic kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Have you read that somewhere before? Isn't that amazing? Micah must have been reading Isaiah, or they got it from the same person. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. The peoples of the nations, the Gentiles, the Goy, the Goyim. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, uh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's taken right out of Isaiah chapter 2. Whenever God repeats himself two or three times, you better pay attention because it's really important. Then he, then verse 3 says, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. What? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's just the same statement that's made in Isaiah 2. 
the Messiah brings that about. So that's our focus on the future hope of the world. Uh, verses 4 and 5 continue to, to emphasize that. How long does it last? We will walk in the name, the we here is Israel. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God, Yahweh Eloheinu, forever and ever. I want you to pay attention to that clause because it's the same verbiage we're going to find later on. Forever and ever means forever and ever, an ending because of the repetition that's there. Sometimes olam, uh, which is the word translated eternal sometimes, can, can just mean for a long time. But when you have words like where it's compounded here in the Hebrew, uh, that means eternity. Then verse 6 shifts a little bit. It says, in that day, uh, in that day, so it, it stays the same. It shifts a little, shifts down in verse uh, verse 9. Verse 6, in that day, says the Lord, I'll assemble the lame, I'll gather the outcasts, those whom I've afflicted, I'll make the lame a remnant, and the outcasts a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. From now on, even forever, and you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. All this reaffirming that God is indeed going to fulfill the promises he made to the house of David to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So no matter how dark things get, no matter how distressing things get, God is still in control and he's going to bring about his plan. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go through some hard times. That doesn't mean we don't go through a lot of personal adversity. That doesn't mean we may not go under divine judgment as a nation. Israel certainly did. Verse 9, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? They lacked a leader. Has your counselor perished? I mean, he's apostate. For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Israel's pain and distress is going to be compared to that of a woman in labor. And God says in verse 10, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of woman, daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. So this is a prophecy that God's going to take you through all this distress and pain and misery and sorrow, and you're going to be taken out of the land and removed to Babylon in captivity. This is a story of Daniel and his three friends uh, taken out of the land. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you, a promise that they will ultimately be restored from the hands of their enemies. Verse 11, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. So there are going to be many nations that are hostile to Israel. We're shifting here to a future forecast. See, we've gone from future with the millennial, then back to the present, that they're going to be taken out in judgment, then back to the future. And so that's where we go with the rest of chapter 4. Then we come to chapter chapter 5. Chapter 5 talks about uh, that judgment. Now gather yourselves in troops, literally troop yourself, O daughter of troops. In other words, organize yourselves in, in, in armies because God has brought siege against you and they will strike the judge or the ruler of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, so far we've talked about Jerusalem and we've talked about the daughter of Zion, which is another way of talking about Jerusalem and the uh, Israelites. And then we have the, uh, uh, now we're going to shift to another city. 
And it says, but you, in contrast to Jerusalem and the daughter of of Zion and the, the ruler who is going to bring judgment on the nation, says, but you, in contrast, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, Bethlehem was a small ta- town, Bethlehem, in the Hebrew, meaning the house of bread. Uh, the etymology of Ephrata may indicate that which is full, but many people believe that it's also a, it was an older name, uh, maybe a Canaanite name for Bethlehem, that Bethlehem is a, the Hebrew name for, for the town, and Ephrata is the oldest, but by using both names, it makes it very clear where we're talking about, uh, and it's located just a few short miles from Jerusalem south of Jerusalem. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little or insignificant among the thousands of Judah, or this word, the literal meaning, uh, Eleph, is thousands. It's a number. But it also came to mean clans or or tribes. Although you're literal, uh, uh, little among the clans or the, the tribes of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And there's a contrast here between the word here used for ruler and the word uh, used for a judge in, in verse 1. And this term is often used, mashal is used of many different rulers, and it, it's emphasizing that there's a shift in terms of the person, and this is referring to the Messiah. And it says, He's, His going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, in the Hebrew, this reads, me is the preposition for from, uh, mekedim, and that is an idiom for from, from of old. Literally, it means like from the east, but it means from a long time, from of old. And then, meme, olam. Olam is the word usually translated eternity, forever, or for a long period of time. And when you have these two idioms joined together from uh, from of old, from everlasting, it really refers to eternity past, that his goings forth have been from eternity past. That tells us right here that this one who is going to come forth from Bethlehem, who's born in Bethlehem, is also someone who has come from eternity. So the two lines... Uh, of the humanity and the deity of the Messiah come together in this particular uh, verse. He's not only born in Bethlehem, just like the child is born, but he's also eternal. He's the eternal son of God. He's, his goings forth are from everlasting. So the three Old Testament passages that you should control in order to say, okay, I can, I can show you that the concept of the deity of Christ it's not something just cooked up by Paul in the New Testament. It's in Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, and in Micah 5.2. And if you're taking notes in your Bible, you can write in the margin those three references, uh, two of those references by each of those verses. So anytime you go to Isaiah 7.14, right there in your margin it says Isaiah 9.6 and Micah 5.2. You go to Micah 5.2 and it says, see Isaiah 9.6 and Isaiah 7.14. And then if you happen to have your Bible with you, you can find those verses. But hopefully you'll learn them. And if you get a chance to talk to somebody, it will come out of your soul and you'll be able to uh, share the gospel. Now, here's one other passage from the Old Testament. 
not as central as those other three, but just another one to uh, reemphasize the deity of the Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Again, emphasizes that, that Davidic covenant promise. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, bringing the two together in a united kingdom. And this is his name by which he will be called. So he's raised up from David, but he is called Yahweh, our righteousness. In other words, how do you explain this, that a descendant of David is called by the personal name of God, Yahweh, our righteousness, indicating that he is full deity and to be identified with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus Christ isn't just a man. Christianity is not unique in claiming that the Messiah of Israel would be uh, fully God. And that is why we can fully rely upon our salvation and we can have, we can understand eternal security. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded of the uh, deity of Christ that this was foretold many times in the Old Testament, not just these three passages, but many, many other times it's indicated and it is reaffirmed in the New Testament uh, many other times that when the Apostle Paul says that that our Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is the eternally blessed God. He is not inventing that. He's not making it up. It's not something new uh, and unique to Paul, but was actually affirmed by all the writers of the New Testament as well as the prophets of the Old Testament. We pray that you might uh, help us remember these passages, their understanding, and that you might continue through the Holy Spirit to equip us to be faithful witnesses as we serve you in the body of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.